Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz saxophonist, composer, and educator Greg Osby. He's making his way to Kansas City to play a gig on October 20th, 2017 at the new Black Dolphin Club. And he's no stranger to the Show Me State. Originally from St. Louis, he has been at this jazz game since the mid-1970s, and he got some good lessons at both Howard University and the Berklee College of Music. But the best education came from all of the cats that he played with over the years, a dream lineup of cats like Jack DeJohnette, Dizzy Gillespie, Andrew Hill, and so many others. We caught up with him during a very busy swing from Europe back to the United States, and he gave us a stack of moments of reflection and a portal into his life. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Cool. Greg, it's an honor to speak with you. Thanks for taking some time out. I appreciate it. My pleasure. No problem. So let me go ahead and dive right in here and kind of ask you about your upcoming trip to Kansas City. You're going to play at the Black Dolphin tomorrow night. Are you looking forward to coming to town? How do you feel about it? It's a privilege to play anywhere where, you know, there's a series of uh, receptive ears and um, open minds. Yes, I mean, so I'll be playing in my in my native state. I'm, I'm going to have a good time. I'm, I actually don't know what I'm going to be in for because uh, the music, uh, I'll be introduced to the music tomorrow. And we'll have a, a quick rehearsal, I guess. So that's all. That's all also very challenging too, because I'll be stepping into uh, the unknown, and that's a lot more mysterious. And uh, I anticipate, you know, something uh, a lot more surprising than the standard fair when people, are, you know, play together a lot and everything is rising comfortable. You know, a word which creative musicians should never utter. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And you're from St. Louis, as you mentioned, you're from Dave, Missouri. So talking about how a kid from St. Louis grew up to have such clout in the jazz world and be such a veteran. You've been at it since 75. St. Louis at that time, you know, was teeming with uh, activity, both professional, amateur, you know, about just about every corner bar, a lounge, a tavern, as they were called. They had um, a, a Hammond B3. So that was kind of the, the backdrop of, of my youth, and kind of the wallpaper of, of, of my younger years, you know, these – these kind of soul jazz, toe-tapping, uh, finger-popping kind of uh, groovy uh, organ trios. That as well as, you know, the, um, the irrepressible uh, funk band or the groove band or, or blues band. So I, you know, as a teenager, I played it all, in all these types of ensembles, never having gone once to any sporting event ever in, my, in high school or anything like that. I, you know, I, I didn't really know what they were talking about. I just, I just played and uh, it was kind of a trial by fire and on-the-job training. When you decided to further your jazz studies, you went on to Howard and then eventually to Berkeley. What did you learn in a formal environment about jazz that helped you so much? Well, they didn't teach me so much about playing the instrument, uh, per se, but in terms of organizing my thoughts and transferring that information to others so that they can interpret, you know, my um, my ambitions as a composer and uh you know, as a as a band leader, that's what I learned. I learned how to corral others to, so that they could um, more accurately interpret my thinking and and my desires as a composer. So that's that's the the, the real benefit of being in a in an academic environment. They teach you discipline and they teach you how to to correctly and accurately relay you know all of your your concepts. 
Otherwise, you know, you you can do it uh, alone. It'll be self-taught, but the, the, there's an unorthodoxy that goes with that, not knowing you know, the the particulars of um, conceptual transference. So, yeah, school. And, and the, I, I would say the biggest benefit was uh, established relationships that, that that I was able to foster being in, in, a, in an environment with other young, talented hopefuls, everybody going for, you know, the same thing and, you know, having this, their, their eyes on the prize, so to speak. So before I left that realm of St. Louis in your early part of your life, I wanted to ask you, what kind of albums were you listening to when you were growing up in the jazz realm specifically that really influenced you? I really didn't delve that deeply into jazz until I went to Howard University, until I was around 17 or 18. Uh, before that, it was mostly soul jazz and blues and funky stuff. And uh, I kind of had a unique in- home environment at the time because my mother worked at a, a record distribution company. And she brought home armloads of free records every day. And, you know, they were promotional copies, cutouts, and discontinued items, and, and what have you. And so it was a, a very unbiased environment in terms, of, in terms of listening, because whatever she brought home, we listened to. And we would, there was music going on at all times. And when I mean unbiased, I mean, you know, devoid of any kind of category or uh, classification. I mean, a typical day, we would listen to everything from Wilson Pickett to Chopin to Aretha Franklin to Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Grateful Dead, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, to James Brown and Jackson 5. I mean, it was that diverse. Very cool, man. Very cool. And so that, you know, just gave me, you know, just a, a, a broader lens in terms of what's good and what's acceptable and uh, – it, you know, it just filled my, my, my heart with wonder because I knew that there was a lot of choices to make and, and, and a lot of potential out there. So in the early 80s, you get into New York and you're around folks like Herbie Hancock, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Jack DeJohnette, Andrew Hill. What did you learn from the Masters at that young age? What was it being around their aura that helped you so much or that, you know, made you grow? Well, the thing about jazz apprenticeship is, is you're given a choice. You can either be mercenary and just take the – the jobs and then get paid and it's, you know you you dust yourself off and you you're in want for another situation or you can be a bit more um, absorptive and make a better use of, of every situation by being uh, aware asking a lot of questions being observant allowing yourself to make the mistakes but only make them once so that means that you grow from each each uh, situation and I was very inquisitive still am actually. And I, you know, I pinned each of those elders against the wall and asked them, you know, uh, a bevy of questions. I, I literally assaulted this. You know, it was a fiery squad of questions because I wanted to know and I wanted to, again, to take advantage of those situations, which I knew were rare. And I was, you know, I, I cherish every moment. So, yeah, I extracted a lot of information from these people so that I wouldn't have to endure the same trials. So you've been in this scene approximately since the mid-70s. You've seen a lot of changes over the years. What would you say have been the most beneficial changes to the world of jazz music since you began up until this moment in 2017? Well, one has been, you know, the the idea that uh, it's, uh, it's far-reaching, you know, to the far corners of the world. And so a lot of people who get access to to the, the 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 jazz the so-called jazz essentials, they're able to filter it and interpret it through their own 
custom folklore and traditions and stuff. So you have like different strains of jazz. You know, wherever you go, you may have Norwegian jazz and Danish jazz and Dutch jazz and Korean jazz and Turkish jazz and Russian jazz. So and uh, so you you're able to to enjoy subtle nuances based upon how people you know process it. That's the the upside. The downside is that, and I dare say that there may be too many schools and not enough elders embracing younger people. And so people are, are coming out of these schools with degrees, and they play this uh, this filtered kind of antiseptic jazz that has no relationship to the, the staples that made it great, meaning that a young person will graduate from a, a conservatory or university program with a degree saying that they, you know, they, you know, They've endured the rigors of that program, having never ever played with somebody old enough to be their father or grandfather. They just play with their peers in classes. Their major endeavor has been to, to get a good grade, as opposed to really tell stories, which is what uh, the elders admonish you for not doing. So they, I mean, so they need that. They need the, you know, the um, the gruff, grimy exterior of people who've actually been in the trenches to tell them that this is the right way and this is the wrong way, as opposed to I'm going to give you an F if you don't do what I tell you to do. So, you know, let's face it, a lot of these teachers and these, these, these programs, they've never been on the road either. So you're getting this, this really uh, severely filtered music that has, yeah, it doesn't have the root source in it anymore. So that's, that's the downside. I mean, it's great that more and more people are playing it and it's accessible to many, but it's, it's starting to lose, you know, the, yeah, the, the, that thing. It's almost, I, I guess the analogy would be it's, it's like a botanist, you know, or, you know, or, or a farmer or whatever who, who works, you know, with plants and, and plants everything, but their hands are always clean. They have clean fingernails. They never, ever, you know, grab the soil. They never get down in it, you know. Yeah. So, so. That's an interesting way, yeah, they're putting it. You know, one of the one of the yeah. levels of jazz education that I can purely understand is, you know, a fan is seeing it live. And I want to ask you this: you you played with so many people that that a lot of people would love to have seen in their lifetime. But let me ask you this: what's one of the most memorable instrumental shows that you've seen that just blew your mind? Mm, that's very uh, that's very difficult. <laughs> I, say, I, I have no idea really um, because a lot of those. Those shows, I actually was, I actually was a part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, to be on stage, you know, with Dizzy Gillespie and, and Clark Perry and Buddy Tate and, uh, you know, the Heath Brothers or, or to play alongside James Moody or Herbie Hancock or, you know, to be with Jack Dijonette for six years. I mean, I can go on and on. I mean, you know, to be with Andrew Hill for, you know, almost 15 years and Jim Hall for more than 15 years, that, that kind of thing, you just can't buy it. You can YouTube it all you want, but to you know to to get up there and and then to look over and you know it's like wait a minute is this real is this the Twilight Zone <laughs> I'm waiting on rocks waiting on rocks certainly to step out of something Alfred Hitchcock you know this this can't be real I'm playing with these people these giants who've made major contributions not only to just jazz but and American culture but to the way music has been interpreted and and accepted in, in the process it's just it's just bigger than than anything I could ever have imagined. Mind blowing for sure. Let me ask you a generic question. Why do you love jazz? I like uh, the I like spontaneity, and I like uh, delving into the unknown, which is why I like to play with a lot of different people, and to play their original music as opposed to just the stands. I like to 
to uh, to witness how people's minds work and how that's uh, uh, interpreted through, you know, the written page. And then, in turn, how other musicians, whether they know them or not, whether they have history with them or not, how, that inter- how that's interpreted. Say, for instance, you know, you get a group of total strangers playing the, the, the original composition of, of one said composer who none of them have any history with. How does that work? How does how does you know how close is it to you know what this uh, this person uh, imagined? You know that that level of uh, surprise and intrigue. You know that that just uh, yeah that this is beguiling. I mean, I just, I just can't imagine being involved in anything else because this is so gratifying when it comes together and even when it doesn't. See, I mean that that's the thing when it doesn't. You know when it implodes and when things don't don't work out. See, that's that's also something I look forward to because now that's when the real magic happens. As Duke Ellington or Miles or, you know, Dizzy or Charlie Parker or whatever great was responsible for this quote, but they said the art is in the recovery. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when you when you falter, now how do you get out of this? How do you box yourself out of, out of this, this corner? Do you do it uh, gracefully and, and, you know, without batting an eye so the – the audience thinks that it was, you know, deliberate, or do you just completely just lose it? And everybody knows that, that you made, you know, made terrible mistakes, you know. So that's that's that separates the masters from, you know, from the serfs <laughs> and the Absolutely. pawns, because the pawns telegraph their mistakes, and the masters turn the mistake into something incredible and memorable. Right on. So let me ask you this. Let me get to the essence of. Mr. Greg Osby, and I want to ask you this. Everyone has a version of who you are or who they think you are, your family, your friends, business associates, all your fans that you have. But when you wake up, when you face the day, you face your world, who do you think you are? I'm a person who's um, seeking to um, to chisel away at, at, at the day's cur- you know, curiosity. Every day I wake up in, in, into a new world of wonder, and discovery and achievement, you know, I'm searching for the answer to the perennial question, and you know, which is a two-word question, is what if, you know, what if I do this and what if I incorporate this and what if I chip away at that and what if I combine these two uh, resources that have nothing to do with each other, what, what will they yield? What if I do this? So I'm, I'm always... Um, Search of. It's like Lenny Nemo. He had this program back in the seventies called It Search of. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm a seeker. That's perfect. That's a great way to leave everything off. Greg, thank you. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thanks for opening up your world. Thank you for your music and for coming to Kansas City. I hope your trip is uh, is a fruitful one. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, St. Louis, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Greg for his stories and his music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.